dear William and Anaya. Hello, babies. Mommy loves and misses you both very, very much. I hope that you are having lots of fun swimming in the swimming pool and jumping on the trampoline. Mommy can't wait to come home and play with you. When I do come home, we will have so much fun being together, and I will be with you forever. We'll be good, and I hope you come to visit me soon. Hugs and kisses. Love, Mommy. Welcome to the fourth and final episode of What Happened to Mommy, a show about motherhood and incarceration. My name is Anaya Washington, and I am joined in this space by the voice of my mom, Stephanie. We are here today, 15 years after my mom was incarcerated, to think about how our life has been impacted by the experience. Today, we want to talk openly and honestly about how our bodies have reacted to fear, pain, and trauma. Throughout the last three episodes, we've discussed some of the most intimate details of my mom's life, from childhood into her young adulthood. This show has given my mom and me the opportunity to see each other's perspectives and to understand more deeply how both of our childhoods have affected who we are, how we are, and how we connect. Through patience and compassion, we have worked through retelling some, but not nearly all, of our most significant memories. In this episode, you will hear my mom talk about her re-entry into her life outside of prison. You will see how she had to fight relentlessly in order to get back custody of her children, and we will see how the label convicted felon has followed my mom throughout her life. This label has caused our family to hide, not only from one another, but from the rest of the world. This show marks the end of our hiding, We are stepping out of our shame and into our power by making our voices, stories, and art heard. We are listening to each other. We are trying to heal. To restore our relationships, everyone in my family has to own up to our mistakes and missteps. This takes a commitment to open and honest communication. We must also work independently to find ourselves some peace and comfort in our own bodies. As you will come to find out during the course of this episode, healing the trauma that my mom's incarceration caused is a lifelong journey. I believe it is never too late to start mending broken hearts. I urge listeners to be mindful of the topics we discuss today, such as prison conditions, physical violence, emotional abuse, domestic abuse, and sexual trauma. It was not a very good homecoming. Um, Pap was excited I was home, but Nanny was not. Um, Nan didn't even come with to pick me up from prison. Your Pap came by himself. Um, And I was so angry because I was really hoping that it would have been all of you coming to get me um, because they give you a time limit. You need to be picked up at 9 a.m. in the morning from the prison 
And then you have X amount of hours before you have to check into your halfway house. So I was all excited that Nan and Pap and you and your brother were going to be there. We were going to go eat. I was going to put on my first pair of civilian clothes. I was going to have real food. And I was going to spend the day with you kids. I walk out to prison and there's your Pap. Nan would not come and would not let you kids come. When my mommy came home in June of 2005, I was two months away from turning six. So far, she had missed out on two of my birthdays, and sadly, she would have to miss out on my Dora-themed birthday party that year too. Although we had all those visits while she was in prison, they amounted to so little in comparison to all the time I was spending on my own, learning and growing. I was maturing quickly because of the way Nanny had been raising me. I was mostly quiet, obedient, and well-mannered, but I had a very fiery temper. I didn't have any hobbies. I wasn't really allowed to. I hadn't even started school, although I was six years old. But I was finding ways to cope with the neglectful environment that surrounded me. I wondered if my mommy was hoping I would still be the same little girl she had left behind. To me, it was as if she were a stranger. The pictures I have of her and me during our visits show the face of a woman I do not recognize. We hadn't spent more than 10 hours together at a time, so she really didn't know much about me either. I expected her to come home and complete me still. I hoped that having a mommy like all the other kids I saw on TV would make me feel happier and less alone. But when mommy came home, we weren't reunited in the way I expected. I could only visit her for a few hours on weekends during the first few years she was here. Her probation restricted how often she could spend time with us. I would see you guys during the week as often as I could without getting caught because I wasn't allowed to be anywhere but my job. So, But I would sometimes leave work on my lunch break after you guys got off school and come and say hi for a couple of minutes. Um, Yous would come up to the halfway house on Saturdays when I wasn't at work and stay there with me for a little bit. But it was really awkward because there was seven other women that lived in that house. So it's not, I wasn't allowed to like take you into my room. There was no private space for us. So I really didn't have you guys up there often because it was just a bunch of random women trying to be around my kids I wasn't okay with. My mom's release from prison led her to this halfway house where she lived for six months. After that, my mom moved into a two-bedroom, compact townhouse in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, with her sister, my Aunt Tappy. They were roommates, and moved into a few houses together during my mom's first three years out of prison. They were always moving, fast-paced, like they had something to chase. We got to spend Saturday nights wherever Mommy was living, but only Saturdays. She would take us back to Nanny promptly on Sunday morning. Nanny would greet us at the front door with a notebook in her hand, ready to document any cut or scratch on our body. She would ask what we ate and when we bathed and when we went to bed and woke up. William and I would have to give her a play-by-play -play of our visit so that she could keep tabs on how unfit my mom was to be caring for us. My nanny's notes would fuel her arguments in the numerous custody hearings they would attend over the course of four years. I was used to these debriefings at the front door, 
They were exactly what my nanny did when I would visit my dad. They were her way of reminding my parents of the control she had over them. It was her way of maintaining her place in power. Her insistence that my parents were not capable of being good parents led me to not being able to be just a child. I was caught up in the crossfire of their battle. Everywhere I went became a war zone. At my nanny's house, I would hear about how terrible my mommy was, and at mommy's house, I would hear about how terrible my nanny was. It was a cycle of negativity and hate that damaged my sense of belonging. There was no legal document saying that Nanny and Pappy had you. It was just a handwritten piece of paper that I hand wrote saying, hey, I want my parents to have temporary custody of my kids so that they could do the things they needed to do legal. But it was never in front of a judge. But your Nanny and your Pap took it to that level. And every time I'd say, okay, I want the kids back, they would give me another excuse. First it was, we could not have you as long as I lived in that townhouse because it was too small. So they moved. My aunt, her boyfriend, and my mom all started renting a house together across the street from one of my favorite bowling alleys. The house was big enough for me and William to have our own bedrooms with twin-sized beds. My mom had started a job as an office manager at an auto body shop, and it was perfect. She got the job through a family friend who cared deeply about her and wanted to make her return home as easy as possible. This same friend also rented us the house across the street from the bowling alley, allowing my mom to get back on her feet, which was an enormous privilege. My mom did, in fact, have a lot of privileges working for her that I would be foolish to ignore. Her story is one of a cisgender white woman from a lower middle-class family that had resources to protect her in the carceral system. She was offered more opportunities than most to get back on her feet. But even so, she stumbled often. It seems that every time we get closer to security, something or someone comes and rips it out from underneath us. Moving into the house by the bowling alley worked for about a year until the friend wanted the house back and new management took over the body shop. My mom's privilege took on a new shape as people started holding her convicted felon status against her. In spaces where she could not hide this status, my mom was seen as someone who deserved less respect. She moved again and searched for a new job, but was met with denial after denial. She struggled to find employment, just like she had when she was a teen with no high school diploma. My mom was left feeling desperate yet again. A pattern started to emerge as I thought about the narrative my mom had told up until this point. When desperation sets in, my mom looks for partnership. When there seems like no options, she looks to another person to keep her steady. These relationships have been crucial to my mom's economic survival at times. They've also introduced more pain and neglect into her life. From my perspective, her choices to enter relationships have hinged on her material needs. Money, housing, clothes, the things that she couldn't always provide herself with. On the other hand, I think my mom has been desperate for love. Desperate for someone to be the father to her children, even though we all already had our own fathers. She was desperate for a better life than the one that we had but I still don't think she's figured out how to get there.
While she was working at that auto repair shop, my mom fell for the man I would start to call daddy a few years later. Michael and my mom gravitated toward each other, I think, not because of love, but because of desire. Michael desired a family of his own to nurture, while my mom desired to be with someone who could help her reunite her family. Together, we became what we had all been dreaming of, a family with a mommy, a daddy, and two happy kids. I was eight years old once my mommy got custody back, and William was ten. We had been through so much at such young ages. Our parents wanted nothing more than to make me and William happy and healthy. Michael saw how badly my mom just wanted her babies back and would do anything to help her. For a long time, I thought Michael was everything we needed. He was a father figure, a goofy playmate, and a spark for our creativity. He moved in with my mom and my aunt soon after they started dating. He was dedicated to our growth. He taught us to ride bikes, tie our shoes, and inspired my love for reading. But even if Michael wasn't everything we needed, he was still someone really important. I will never forget the love that he showed to me in those years, but his love for me and William wasn't enough in my grandparents' book. My mom still had to prove herself worthy of being our mother. Soon, she was pregnant with my sister, Cece. Her lawyer, who was also invested in creating the image of a perfect mother, advised her to get married to Michael. They thought that a newly married woman with a baby on the way would win the heart of any judge she had to appear in front of. I said, okay. So I called. And I got Michael and I a marriage license. I called and set up an appointment with a district justice. And I went out to the wash bay. This all happened while I was at work. And I said, uh, we're getting married on June 28th. He was like, wait, something else happens on June 28th. Oh, that's the day the Batman movie gets released or the Superman movie or something. I'm like, well, then that can be our, our honeymoon because we're getting married at two o'clock or whatever time it was on that day. So I can have the kids back. He was like, all right, I ain't got nothing else to do. So, we got married. According to my mom, it was just that simple. They got married, had Cece, and kept working to bring me and William home. They got the perfect house, a four-bedroom duplex in a beautiful neighborhood just outside of Lancaster City. It was here that I would have some of my happiest childhood memories and meet some of my dearest friends. It was here that my mom would have all three of her babies under one roof. There were no more excuses to be made. My mommy was worthy. Or was she? My mom had been questioned for six years straight. Her worries about not being a good enough mom started to plant roots. She became unbalanced in her role as a mother shifting between good days and bad days. Some days, she would want to have family breakfast and play board games until our cheeks cracked with wide smiles. Some days, she couldn't even stand to rise from her bed. We learned to tiptoe and play in our rooms on mommy's bad days. I started sleeping over at friends' houses as often as possible because outside of the house, I had more freedom to just be a kid. 
At home, we had to be clean. We had to be organized. We had to follow our strict daily schedules and eat fruit with every meal. The rules were simple, as she would say, echoing her own mother. Scrub the baseboards twice a month and the toilet bowls every Saturday. Soup cans must face forward in the pantry. Clothes get hung facing the same direction in rainbow order, by style. Each dresser drawer opened into an intricate maze of folded t-shirts and pajama pants. Everything had a place. Everything had to be perfect. It's like I lived with this fear that someone was going to show up at the door one day and they were going to walk through the house and they were going to say, oh, you know what? This towel's not folded right. You're not fit to be a mom. My mom and Michael worked so hard to be good parents to the three of us. And I think in a lot of ways they succeeded. My mom worked tirelessly to clean and organize the house while Michael exhausted himself at the auto body shop day after day. For birthdays and holidays, they showered us with gifts. We took perfect family photos in matching outfits with smiles painted on our faces. Behind those smiles was a family that was struggling. My mom and Michael were never very good at keeping me out of their business. I listened to everything they said and hung on to it. By the time I was nine, I knew every curse word in the dictionary. I also knew how expensive it was to keep on the gas in the house. I heard my mom and Michael fight often about paying the bills. I heard her ranting on long phone calls with my aunts about how tiring it was raising us kids and how much money it took to take care of us. I was overly aware of the cost of my existence at a very young age. I knew we didn't have a lot of money, and I always felt that my family was different from the wealthy and middle-class white kids I was surrounded by in school. Our low-income status hurt my mom's pride, and she did her best to keep the truth from me and my siblings. But we were struggling financially for a really long time after my mom won custody of me and William back. She had spent thousands of dollars on her prison fees, court costs, and lawyers. She was left with no money and no credit after the battle was over, but she had her babies. Her hyper-control over our home and daily schedules created tension between us all. We fought more and more with each missed chore or homework assignment. So between the ages of 10 and 16, I spent a lot of time away at my friends' houses or roaming the alleyways around our neighborhood on my bike. I would do anything just to be out of the house. I was escaping my mom's control. When I couldn't leave, my punishments included being sent to my room to sit on the floor, writing essays about what I had done wrong, and not being allowed to go outside to play. My mommy had recreated the conditions she had been in for her children, but I don't think she realized that's what she was doing. Like, I realized at that moment that no matter how hard I tried to keep everybody completely structured and this is how it's going to be and there's not going to be any chances for anything to mess us up, William ran away. And William ran away and 
Ari found him and your pap told me in the middle of the street in front of the whole neighborhood that I, I was not fit to be a mother. And that the moment he could get the judge to take you kids away from me, he was taking you away from me. And <laughs> as I interviewed her, my mom's laugh was uncomfortable and removed from her body. She shook her head slowly as she chuckled, as though she was refusing to accept that this had really happened. My mom still struggles to admit that she has let us down, that even though she tried so hard, she has still failed to give my siblings and me the things we need and deserve. She had fought so hard for so many years to have her babies come live with her, but we needed more than just a home. We needed her to recognize our cries for help, like William's attempt to relocate himself. Like my temper tantrums that followed me into elementary school, middle school, high school, and have persisted into college. William couldn't say what had set him off the day that he ran away, nor could he put words to what had been going through his head. He couldn't constantly escape into his video game worlds at mommy's house. She tried to limit his screen time, something Nani had never done before. But it turns out that William's video gaming habits were part of his coping mechanisms. It was a tool for him to block out and ignore the things that made him uncomfortable in the real world. William found a way to be seen as quiet, and it made me seem louder. I used to cry for so long and with such intensity that I would stop breathing. I'm sure it was terrifying for my mom, but she met my cries with anger. Her frustration and inability to help me process what I was feeling in those moments only intensified the fire in me. I would start screaming with my eyes closed, throwing myself on the couch or the bed or the floor. I feel in these moments like I have lost control of myself. We thought I'd grow out of the tantrums, but I never really did. Sometimes I just lose all control and give myself over to the weight of my feelings. I am pulled under the surface of my skin and I must fight, must get you to hear me, help me, through my flesh, I see nothing. The world has gone blank. I think I scream to hear myself. Remember, I can still breathe. Escape is impossible because no matter where I go, the other parts of me will follow. Your temp I think your tantrum started because you were struggling to express I can say this now. Then I had no idea, but now looking back, you've always had an issue expressing your feelings. I think it was a fear that you got installed from everything you experienced at such a young age. Um you went through a lot, you know, the 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 fighting that your dad and I used to do. You were a baby. But I think you still have subconscious recollection of those things. Um, me being arrested, being shifted to your nanny and pappy. Um, I think that you, you 
because of my actions and things that I did, they caused you the inability to express yourself and feel safe expressing yourself. So I think your temper tantrum started because you couldn't, you couldn't verbalize what you were feeling and you had a lot of uh, anger, confusion and hurt that you truly didn't comprehend. And that's where those temper tantrums came from. I think mommy is right. I've never felt safe expressing myself. I've never been able to explain the things I am feeling. And this is because no one ever took the time to teach me how. Nanny never sat me down to ask why I was crying. She would just send me to my room, perhaps hoping my tears would drown me. Mommy never asked either. She would get too frustrated at my cries. With paper-thin patience and a voice like thunder, my mommy scared me out of saying what I needed to say. If I didn't stop crying, she would give me a reason to. Even though my mommy never laid a hand on me, she threatened me into silence. She forced me to swallow my feelings whole, and I've been choking on them ever since. Unable to move my mouth into shapes that would make someone else understand what was going on inside of my head. Learning to express the happenings of my inner world has been a really long process. Self-expression has been the biggest part of my personal healing journey. As I grew older and my emotional baggage started to weigh me down, I found myself writing poetry more and more. After I had an intense rush of emotions, or sometimes just right there in the middle of the hurricane, I would write furiously. I would write long letters when people hurt me, but I'd keep them to myself. I wrote short and lengthy verses that sometimes just amounted to gibberish, but I was putting words on pages. Poetry was the gateway to me finding my voice, but starting to perform poetry was what really changed my life. I started to say things I had never said before. I finally named the hurt my mom had caused me, declared the toxic nature of some of my past relationships, and expressed my concern for the safety of my little sisters. I was spilling my heart out, and with every new line I wrote, I let it all overflow. I actually have a recording of the first time I ever performed at a poetry slam. It is not perfect. The sound quality is low, and I trip over my words a couple of times. But at that point in time, I had no idea that that night would mark the start of a very important part of my healing. It was just a random Wednesday night in February 2019. Standing on that stage and speaking my truth for the first time was empowering. As I've continued to write and perform my poetry, I've started to fall in love with all the different parts of me. I love parts of me that are hurting and give them special attention when I write. I love the parts of me that are bursting with beauty and allow positivity to radiate off of me when I'm on stage. I let myself say things I never had the courage to say growing up. Forced silence kept me trapped in my trauma, but poetry allows me to lay it out all in front of me. This is titled My Favorite Place. I'm from where the sun tends to not shine as bright. 
A place where the shadows are more comforting than showing off your worn-out sneakers. A place that creaks and screams without making a sound. A place no one wants to listen to. No, we don't need that. And after I pay the rent or our anthems, we play them on repeat just like the 2008 Kids Bop CD, the only one mom would ever let us buy. My mattress, laying on the dusty wood floors, wonders why it's so alone, why there's no one there to support it. The light bulb dangling above the kitchen table exhausts itself trying to be bright enough. It will never be bright enough. It will never overcome the darkness of this place no matter how many times we change it. The yellow slips on the front door only invite more darkness. They call out to the neighbors to remind them we aren't okay, to remind them this place isn't permanent, to remind them this place can be left, can be boarded up, can be hollowed out, can be forgotten once those yellow slips turn to green. This place I'm from doesn't want to keep me, but won't let me leave. It sings its claws into my identity and pulls me every which way. It dares me to run. It dares me to hide from its reality. It dares me to look it in the eyes and say, that's enough. I'm from a place where ramen noodles made in the microwave with a little bit of mayo and a little bit of deli turkey is a normal Sunday dinner, a place that doesn't expect much, a home, a war zone, a prison, millions of neighbors just like me, just like my sisters, just like my brother, all fighting a battle we didn't pick, sometimes losing and sometimes winning, but never giving up. My sister Cece is a poet too. I guess it is in our blood. I see how her poems free her too. We hear each other and always have. Cece has been my best friend for 14 years now, and I know that will never change. It kills me sometimes to think about the trauma she has to hold in her own body, of being forgotten, shuffled around, silenced. We have the same mommy, and she has hurt us both. We have the same mommy, and we love her endlessly. We hold both of these truths in our bodies, and the contradiction begs us to make sense of it. When mommy looks at me and Cece, I know she sees two stars twinkling side by side. Sometimes I think mommy is just scared of our brightness, scared she isn't bright enough to stand next to us. Scared her past will cast shadows over her little stars. But mommy could never dull us. She is one of the reasons we shine. Mommy is our inspiration for strength and perseverance. Our mommy is bright enough to light this dark world. Throughout my entire life, I've seen my mom stuck comparing herself to other mothers. At school, at church, or at soccer practice, my mom would look to see if she was doing things right. But she didn't seem to wear the right clothes or pack the right lunches or attend the right church. In her eyes, she still isn't good enough to be our mother. I think she's waiting for a kind of perfection that will never come. Her attempts to have the perfect family and the perfect house were soured with heartbreak. When I was 13, my mom and Michael divorced. I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. 
I remember how hard I tried to keep them together, believing that their relationship was what held our family together. Michael has since found love and joy in his life. He has been a constant source of encouragement and support throughout my life, even after the divorce. Michael is an incredible father and friend. He has taught me what it means to love without conditions. After Michael and my mom split up, she started dating. I hated almost every single person she brought home. They never seemed good enough for my mommy. They never seemed like adequate replacements for my dad or for Michael. After the fifth and sixth relationship, it started to feel like mommy just needed to have someone there. Someone else to give her love, because the love me and Cece and William gave her somehow wasn't enough. In between all of these relationships, my mom found herself pregnant again. I was 16 at the time, and I was infuriated with my mom. I worried about how we would care for this new baby, since my mom was already struggling to take care of the three babies she already had. Beside me, Cece began spiraling into sadness as she watched her family be torn apart into two homes. Cece needed stability, but a little sister was only going to shake up our world further. When my youngest sister, Olivia, was born in 2015, my family started to change a lot. My mom let her guard down about how neat and clean things had to be around the house. But instead of constant cleaning duties, my job switched to the babysitter. My mom and I started fighting constantly about how much I was giving up to help raise my little sister. I was not supposed to question my mom's parenting choices, just like she was not supposed to question her mother. Again, we spun around and around the same cycles of neglect. Our spinning led to screaming and our screaming led to crying. The only way to stop the spinning was for me to speak up. Slowly and through very difficult conversations that had to happen before I could start this project, I think my mom has started to really hear me. I think she now understands what my relationship with my little sisters means to me, why I have felt such a deep desire to keep them safe, happy, and healthy. I hope she sees that all of the choices I have made in opposition to her have been to protect them or myself from harm. Since I left for college in 2018, I've worked really hard on my communication skills. I've started practicing mindfulness through meditation and journaling, which allows me to collect my thoughts and feelings before I try to express them to my family and friends. I have a sense of control over my life that I've never had before. The love I have for my family continues to push me to improve my mental health and communication skills. As I learn to slow down and think before I speak or cry, I'm setting an example for my mom, my brother, and my sisters. I share nearly everything I learn about methods for handling trauma and stress responses in hopes of helping all of the other people in my family find their own peace. This healing journey I speak of will be lifelong. For me, healing looks like comfort. It looks like smiles that bubble into laughter. Healing looks like honesty, 
and acceptance. Healing looks like forgiving. I'm still figuring out what else healing might look like for me. There are so many stories for me to tell, poems for me to write, and connections for me to make. My mom is starting to figure it out too, and I'm hopeful that through individual and family therapy, she can start to connect the dots in her life. I am hopeful that she will feel inspired to heal herself once she understands the deep effects her actions have had on her babies. I think most importantly, my mommy has to keep learning that she doesn't have to be perfect, but that she has to be honest. She has to be honest, not just with me and my siblings, but also with herself. She has to be honest about her privileges as a white woman. She has to be honest about the mistakes she has made. She just started therapy a few weeks ago, and I've given her books and articles to read about different trauma theories. I hope that through these things, my mommy will find peace in her mind and in her body. I hope that she will see someday, without any doubt, that she is deserving of so much love. My mommy has been running, sprinting actually, ever since she was released from prison 17 years ago. My siblings and I have spent our lives chasing her, tripping over our small feet often, collecting more bruises. Mommy has fallen too. We're slowing down now, and this podcast marks an important moment in our journey together. I feel like I know my mom now, more than I ever was able to before hearing her story. This is only the beginning. It makes me sad to think about how many years we've gone without really knowing each other. But we are ready now, to be more honest than before, to seek the help we know we need, and to support each other in our search for peace. Trauma lives in my body. It clings to my shoulders, it pushes on me, presses weight into my spine. I have gotten so strong. I push back against the trauma in me. I refuse to let it have any control. My healing is lifelong, and my healing is every day. I know I've only just started. I think that has helped me a lot is the fact that I find joy in my healing practices. I'm incredibly intentional about caring for my body every day through movement, proper nourishment, and lots and lots of rest. I meditate daily, usually in the mornings, so I can set an intention to be mindful throughout my day. I also have a black cat named Syro. He's my emotional support pet and has brought so much comfort and joy into my life since I brought him home last year. I write so often and I share my work all of the time, whether that's on stage or just to my friends. I am doing so well and because I'm doing so well, I knew I was ready to take on this project and share my story with you all. My hope is that as you have listened to these four episodes, you have felt conflicted and maybe even uncomfortable. My hope is that this show will bring my family closer than we have ever been before and that our story can inspire others. I do not know all of the answers about how to heal the damage that has been done to our homes and communities. I do know 
that we still deserve to relentlessly pursue happiness and comfort. I wonder though, why my family has had to figure this out all on our own? Why has no one offered us help? Why did no one care about my mommy's babies when they sent her away? I ask myself oftentimes, what would prison abolition mean for my family, who has already been bruised by the overbearing grasp of the US prison system? These questions are difficult, but I ask myself them almost every day. What can we do to help mommies and their babies? And what does it mean to refuse to help these women? It is not just individual families. It is communities everywhere that are suffering from these effects. So until there is an answer to these questions, I will continue to make art. I will continue to focus on my breath. I will continue to forgive my mommy. Together, we will grow. We will forge new connections to make up for the damaged ones. We will care for each other. To my little sisters, Cece and Olivia, this project is meant to be a guide. It is meant to be a way for you to understand yourselves and understand how you fit in this family. It is meant to help you understand how important you are to me and to mommy. To William, my loving big brother, this podcast is meant to be your guide too. It is meant to give you courage to speak your own stories and to make your own art. It is meant to show you that you do not have to hide from the things that have hurt us. And to everyone that has been talked about in this show, this is a thank you as well as a call to action. I have been saved by some of you and let down by others. Do not take this story and do nothing with it. Take accountability, have your own difficult conversations, and consider the impact of all that you have chosen to do or to not do. Thank you all for listening to What Happened to Mommy. I'm so excited to see where my healing journey will take me next. I hope that you too will think about what healing your own pain can and should look like. We all deserve to find peace in our bodies and our minds. <laughs>